Well, good morning, everyone. Wanted to uh, let you know, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a series on spiritual warfare. We're going to wrap it up today. And I want to kind of give you some perspective of what we've talked about so far. And just so I don't knock all those over at some point. Uh, we've come to the grips with the reality that we are in a spiritual battle. And that we have an adversary uh, known as the devil. Uh, what we have learned about him is that he and his evil forces of darkness are powerful and effective. In fact, if we were to try and go toe-to-toe with him, kind of mano and mano, we would lose every single time. He is on a mission to deceive, to divide, to discourage, and ultimately to destroy. But we've also learned that even though we have an adversary, we also have an advocate. We have someone who battles on our behalf, if you will. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Our victory in this spiritual warfare ultimately comes through our surrender. When we entrust ourselves to the only one who has the power to overcome our enemy. Only then can he equip us with his armor in order to help us stand firm to carry out his mission. Because when it comes to overcoming evil, there's only one who can do that. And that is God himself. And one day he will. But until that day, we need to understand that he's not going to sit back and watch and see how things play out. In fact, as we will learn this morning, he will actually use the works of the devil, if you can believe it, to accomplish his good purposes. Now, I want you to think about that. God is powerful enough to use Satan's evil intent to accomplish his good purposes in the world. He can use those hard times that we go through to strengthen our faith. He can use Satan's attempts to discourage and distract us to to deepen our trust. And what we will see today is that he can even use Satan's effort to destroy our Savior to accomplish our redemption. Nothing is outside of the boundary of God to fulfill his promise to work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called to his purposes. Not even Satan himself can stand in the way. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray that that message is crystal clear this morning. That there is an understanding of the reality of a spiritual battle that every single one of us in this room is in the midst of. No exemptions. We're all on the field. We're all involved in the battle. And the victory is not dependent upon who's the strongest. But instead, it's the one in whom we humble ourselves to that accomplishes that victory for us. Even using the strategies of the enemy to accomplish his good purposes. May we see that clearly this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Job chapter 1. I didn't put slides up this morning because we're going to spend time in, in passages that we're going to stay in for a little bit. So if you'll just turn there with me and we're going to look at it together. Job chapter 1, verse 1. 
Job is a familiar story, but we're going to make sure we hit some of the highlights of things that are important for us to understand as it relates to this issue of spiritual warfare. So Job chapter 1 uh, begins like this. It says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go up and hold a feast in the house of each one, of his, in each one uh, on his day. And, and they would send out and invite their three sisters to eat and, and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rise up early in the morning, offering a burnt offering according to the number of them. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And Job did this continually. In these first five verses, we learn a lot about this man named Job. We learn about his character, which is described as a man who's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. Now, when you hear that word blameless, don't think sinless. Job was not a perfect man. But he would be what we would call above reproach. Somebody who you would respect because you see them always trying to do the right thing. And despite all that he had, he wasn't just looking out for himself. He was attentive to the needs of others. The other thing I want you to notice that we see in this passage is that Job was no stranger to Satan's temptation. It says that he faced evil, but he turned away from it. And so what that tells us is that that Satan had made efforts to distract him, to divide him, to discourage him, to destroy him. Satan offered him that trade that we talked about. Believe me and not God's promises, but Job was unwilling to accept that offer. He was a righteous man. But he also was a good steward. He took care of all that God had given him. He was wealthy, but not proud. When you see there the description of all that he had and all those servants, I want you to think employees. These are people who had a good job, who worked for a good man, who took care of all that God had blessed him with. And he was close to his family. What's described in those verses is that they would get together each on their birthday. And they would all come together and celebrate in, uh, that birthday of, of, that, of that brother or sister. And Job was there with his wife as well. And it also tells us that Job was a spiritual leader of this family because he offered sacrifices on behalf of his kids. Now, what's important to understand about that is this is before the, Mo the law of Moses and the sacrificial system. Any of that existed. This was Job's own heart recognizing God's sovereign control of all things. And that's who we go to for grace and forgiveness. And he led his family in that understanding. He looked to God as a source of, of forgiveness and grace. Now look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth. Notice the repeat here. He's blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him 
and his house and all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he shall surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. When we read this, we learn about Satan. In the first few verses, we learned about Job. Now we get a little insight on who our enemy is. It says that he is counted among the sons of God. That's a term in Scripture that's used to describe angels. So all that's saying is Satan presented himself with the heavenly host before God. And when God asked him what he's been up to, one of the things that he says is that he's been roaming around the earth. So what I want you to understand in those simple words is this. Unlike God, Satan can only be at one place at one time. He is not omnipresent. If he's in heaven, he's not on earth. If he's in earth, he's not on heaven. If he's here, he's not over there. You understand what I'm saying? He's only in one place at one time. And I want you to notice his arrogance, right? When God asked him about whether he knew about Job, do you think that that was new information to Satan? Did he know about Job? Of course he did, because we learned in the first few verses that he had tempted Job with evil, but Job didn't accept the offer. He knew who Job was. He's playing dumb. (laughs) You see, he arrogantly challenges God. Because ultimately what he says is, yeah, I I know Job. And you know what? The only reason he worships you is because you bribe him. You give him all these good things, why wouldn't he serve you? Take those things away, and he'll curse you to your face. Satan cannot imagine anyone honoring God for who he is, rather than what he gives. Replace his success with suffering, and he'll curse you. Now, keep in mind that this was all God's idea. He's the one that brought up the conversation, but I want you to see that Satan has to have permission. And he can only work within certain boundaries. Unlike God, he is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. His power and his presence is limited within God-ordained boundaries. Satan is allowed to bring destruction into Job's life, and he does. In the next few verses, he wreaks havoc. He takes all of his kids, kills them. Takes all of his servants, kills them. Takes all of his livestock, kills them. He literally destroys everything that Job had except his own life and his wife. Those are the only things remaining. But I want you to see how Job responds to this. Look at verse 20. After all that had happened, here's Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And look at what he says. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return to there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. This is almost unimaginable, isn't it? I want you to understand that Job was grieved. 
the, the tearing of his clothes, the shaving of his head, those were very culturally normal things to express deep hurt and grief. So don't think it was no big deal because it was a big deal. Job grieved, but he was not angry at God. And so if you're like me, I'm wondering, why not? Because one of the things we, he says helps answer that question. He basically says it came from God to begin with. It belongs to him and he has the right to take it back. You see, we become bitter. We become angry. When we have this idea that it's mine. That this stuff belongs to me. And now I become the judge of what's fair and right. And that's how I become angry with God. Because he's messing with my stuff. But Job has a different perspective. He says, look, it wasn't mine to begin with. Am I grieved deeply? Am I hurt deeply? But blessed be the name of the Lord. The next encounter with Job tells us a few things about Satan in addition to what we've already learned. One is that he doesn't learn. He's not teachable. His arrogance knows no limits. He is hell-bent on having his own way. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It said, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered, and the Lord said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, blameless, upright, man-fearing God, turning away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that he has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and, and smote Job with, with sores and boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he took the, the ashes and, and scraped himself while he was sitting among the ashes. That's how miserable he was. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good things from God and not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan is determined, hell-bent on accomplishing his destructive purposes in Job's lives. But he ends up serving God's purposes in Job's life. Now, we hear this story, and rightly so, we feel some discomfort with all that is happening to Job. And we get lost in the trauma of this situation and go, man, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, how can anything good come out of this? Well, we need to go to Job and ask him that question. Turn to Job 42. Verse 1, Job 42, verse 1. When it's all said and done, and all that has taken place kind of reaches its finality, 
Here's what Job has to say about all that occurred. 42 verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask and, and you, God, instruct me. I have heard about you, Lord, from the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Let me describe it to you like this. This is what Job is saying. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know or have heard of Kevin Durant? Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, most everybody in this room. You've heard of Kevin Durant. You know who he is. How many of you have ever sat down with Kevin Durant, had a meal with him, and talked about life together? Same, same thing. Show of hands. Nobody. Nobody. Well, what he's saying here is, God, I've heard about you. Kind of like you heard about Kevin Durant. He says, but because of what I've gone through, I now know you. I know your heart. And I know that there is nothing, not even Satan himself, that can stand in the way of you accomplishing your good purposes. Things, he says, too wonderful for me. And in the end, I trust you. You see, what Satan intended for harm, God used for good. And Job's faith was strengthened. In the end, his final condition was better than the first. Now, you and I look at that and we say, well, we wouldn't invite that on the front end, but I assure you, Job wouldn't trade it on the back end because he has found that God is faithful. God allowed Job's suffering with a redemptive purpose in mind. He used Satan and his evil intent to strengthen Job's faith. Let's look at another example. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is another familiar passage. This is the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Okay? And there's some very important principles from this encounter that we can take uh, to heart as well. The, the first thing that we're seeing here is that God can use difficult situations to strengthen our faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Because here we're going to see how God uses difficult things to deepen our trust. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, that is Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, then Satan took him to a holy city and had him. And out of your hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and began to minister 
Jesus. Notice, just like we saw in the encounter with Job, God is in control. How did Jesus get to this encounter? The Spirit led him. God led him to this place. God chose the time. He chose the location. He chose when it would begin. He chose when it would end. Not even Satan's temptations are independent of God's sovereign control. Now, we won't go through all the details of what happened in this encounter, but there are some important things that we need to see because they also are used on us as well. Some of the same strategies that Satan employed with Jesus, he does with us as well. The key here is understanding what he's saying in verse 3 and 6. Notice how he begins the conversation in both of those situations. He says, if you are the Son of God, now let's be honest. Did he really not know who Jesus was? If you are the Son of God, of course he did. He's enticing Jesus to take action independent from God. Let me illustrate it to you this way. I'm going to use this as an example, but when you have your parent, you have young kids, you've used this strategy before, okay? It goes a little bit like this. I'm using a cookie, but it usually is employed when you're trying to get them to eat green beans. Same strategy, though. You take the green beans, you take the cookie, and you look at it and you say, Oh, that looks disgusting. You don't want any of this. In fact, oh, that is not delicious. Please, whatever you do, don't take a bite of this because you're going to hate it. I mean, that's not the best thing you've ever had in your mouth. I promise you that. Whatever you do, don't take a bite. You understand the strategy? So in time, what's that child's response? Give me some of those green beans. They want it. You're enticing them to take control. And that's exactly what Satan is doing with Jesus. He's been fasting for 40 days. And basically says, I know you're hungry. Just turn the stones into bread. Eat all you want. It's yours. Now let me ask you this. Could Jesus turn those stones into bread? Absolutely, brother. Good answer. Is that act in and of itself, from the mouths of babes, I love it. Is that act in and of itself sinful? No. Because just think, he turned water into wine. What's the difference? Stone into bread. The miracle itself is not the issue. It's the motivation behind it. Satan is trying to entice Jesus. You're hungry. You want it. Take control. Act independent of what God wants you to do. You want it. Take control. Jesus says, no. The bread that God gives me through trust and faith in him is sufficient to carry me through. Well, so Satan takes another shot at him. He employs Jesus' strategy. He uses scripture in the second attempt. And he says, basically, jump off this building because God says he'll protect you. And so here's a promise of God's provision. Prove that it's true. Jesus' response to him is to explain to him that, listen, what's sinful about that is that you're making God obligated to what you think he should do 
or what you want him to do. Let me give you another illustration. I'm going to advance this to teenage years, okay? You, we tell our teenagers, I tell Graham, hey, bud, I want you to drive a big car. I want you to have something that's safe on the road. I don't want you to be in something small. So this would be like Graham coming to me and say, hey, Dad, I did a little research. I have found that a Hummer is the safest car on the road. <laughs> I've also done a little research and found that the tuxedo black color happens to be the one less ticketed. So, to use your words, if you really love me, that's the car you'll get me. Who's serving who? That's the temptation that Satan's making on Jesus. He's saying, look, you can have this. God said it, so prove it. And Jesus' response makes it very clear. I will not put God to the test. Do you know why? Because he doesn't serve me. I'm here to serve him. And therefore, I'm not going to do anything that puts him to the test. He's in control. I'm here to do his will. See the difference? The third one kind of is Satan's attempt to kind of throw everything out the window and say, okay, let's cut to the chase. The world is mine. We've talked about this. It's clear. The world be belongs to Satan. This is the place where he uses the world to accomplish his evil intent. He says, it belongs to me. If you worship me, I'll give it to you. I'll give you this world if you give me your worship. What's important to understand here is Satan knows that Jesus is on a rescue mission to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. Satan knows this. He knows who he is. He know what, knows what he came to do. But here's what his offer is. I'll give you the world, and you don't have to have the cross. I'll give you what you came for, and you can take a shortcut. Jesus says, I can't worship you and serve God at the same time. So I will not worship you in order to fulfill his purpose. And we know from Scripture that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus trusted his Father enough to give his own life. So as we think about this temptation and things that we learn from this, I want you to know that I'm not going to tell you that this simply gives us a pattern of what we need to do to overcome Satan's temptation. There are some principles in here, and it's really the one that we talked about last week. You'll notice that the victory began with surrender. Jesus consistently submitted to the will of the Father to overcome the deception of the enemy. True? So we can take that away from it, but I don't think that's the main point. Again, how did Jesus get to the desert to begin with? The Spirit led him there. Now, was this like a shuttle bus where the Spirit left him? Dropped him off and said, call me when you're ready, I'll come back. No. Man, this guy's good. <laughs> I hope these guys are listening as much as that guy is. <laughs> no, that's, that's not what he did. He, you're exactly right. What we need to understand is this temptation, this scene in the desert tells us that the Spirit of God Listen, this is good. The Spirit of God empowered the Son of God to accomplish the will of God 
for your salvation. And not even Satan himself can stand in the way of Jesus accomplishing what he came to do. Do you get that? That's the main point. When you read this scene, that's what you need to think about. Not all hell and all angels and demons who follow that enemy can stand in the way of what Jesus came to accomplish on your behalf. It's more than a strategy of what we should do. It's the evidence of what God has done to deepen our trust. Because if he's faithful in that, if God's powerful to overcome in that way, what will he not do to demonstrate his love for you? See, Satan is always serving God's purposes, even to the point of securing your redemption. Now, we've already mentioned this, that that Satan is the ruler of this world. And I want you to know Jesus even acknowledges this. You, You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. You can write it down if you want to. It's John chapter 12, verse 31. John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus says this, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, speaking of Satan, will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Another verse is chapter 14, verse 30, if you want to write that one down as well. Jesus, again speaking, says, I'm not speaking much more with you, for the ruler of this world, there it is again, is coming. And he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. You see, Satan had Uh, Jesus knows and and says explicitly, Satan is the ruler of this world, but not for long. Because I've come to change that. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 24, you'll see that Satan and all of his demons knew this. In Mark 1, 24, you see the demons and they say, are you here to destroy us? We know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. Even they know Jesus came with a conquering mission. And so in order to appreciate the gravity of what's happening here, I want you to go back to the garden. (laughs) Go back to the garden of Eden. You'll remember God gave Adam and Eve, after having created them in his perfect design, all rule and dominion over this earth that he created, right? He says, this is yours. I've created it for you to enjoy. My goodness is built into this design. I want you to have this because I love you. And then we know that Satan comes onto the scene. And as we've already talked about, he's always wanting to make a trade. He's always wanting to to strike up a bargain. And and so he tells them, essentially, put your trust in me more than what God has promised. And they accept his offer. Now, here's what you need to understand. When they accepted that offer from Satan, they handed over. The dominion and rule that God had given it to them and put it themselves under the authority of Satan himself, the one they put their trust in. Do you get that? You're wondering, how did Satan get into this position to begin with? That's how. In the garden, given the choice, they elected to set aside God's promises to live under the rule of Satan himself. And you know what they did when they made that decision? They gave Satan permission to destroy their life. Because that's his intent. That's what he's here for. 
They gave Satan permission to destroy their life. And every single one of us who are born after them are born into that agreement. Having given Satan permission to destroy our life. But even in the midst of that fall, there was a promise. And I want you to, you, this is familiar, you've heard this before. Genesis chapter 3 Verse 14, this is after all this has happened in the garden. The Lord God said to the serpent, which is Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And this is the key. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, that sounds kind of cryptic, I understand. But as you follow the story, it becomes increasingly clear what was communicated in that promise that God made. In the promise, he looks at Satan and he says, look, there's going to be strife between you and your evil forces and humanity that I created in my image. Constantly going to be at odds with each other. He says, but in the end, there's the promise. From the seed of that humanity will come a savior and you will inflict pain and your destruction upon him but in the end he will crush you what he's speaking of becomes increasingly clear throughout scripture because at first we have this seed from humanity that's a pretty big pool when you say but over time as you read the old testament you see it increasingly narrowed down to the nation of Israel, that's smaller. The tribe of Judah within the nation of Israel, that's smaller. The, the lineage of David, the royal lineage, that's smaller. In fact, it even goes as far as to say, this one promise will be born in Bethlehem. That's getting really small. In fact, he will be born of a virgin. Uh, never happened before, that's really small. And he will be pierced for your transgressions. All these things said hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus was ever born. And so when he walks onto the scene, you need to know he came with a mission that was promised in the beginning. To overthrow Satan and to establish God's kingdom on earth. And as we've seen with Job, and then as we saw again in the desert, God, once again, allows Satan to carry out his destructive intentions. And he led Jesus to the cross. Make no mistake, this was all part of the plan. You see, Satan was thinking all along this would be his ultimate victory. He knew who he was. So he destroys him on the cross. It's done. I win. But God knew all along that what Satan would do would ultimately accomplish what he said he would do. Because that death on the cross became Satan's ultimate defeat in the means of our redemption. You do need to look at this one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. That way you're not just taking my word for it. <laughs> you're seeing God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. 
Hebrews is after Colossians, Timothy, Philemon, and then Hebrews. You've gone to James, you've gone too far. Go back left. All right? So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I want you to see this. Therefore, since the children, and he's talking about humanity, share in flesh and blood, that's you and I, he himself, Jesus, also took on the same flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Let's make it clear, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives him authority over Satan and his evil demonic forces of darkness. You may remember the Great Commission when Jesus talks about kind of his last words to the disciples and says, go and make disciples, right? Well, before he says that, you may remember he, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. What you need to understand that this decision of what it means to be a Christian is based upon a decision, a transfer of allegiance, if you will. And the scripture speaks clearly to that. We know the verse in Colossians that I've mentioned several times where it says, you who have trusted in Christ have been delivered out of the domain of darkness. And get this, transferred to the kingdom of my beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. By faith, Satan and sin are no longer your master. You live in the kingdom of God's grace and forgiveness. It is a transfer of allegiance. See, what Adam destroyed by giving what God had given him to the rule of Satan, Jesus restored through his sacrifice and accomplishing his victory over death and taking the power away from the enemy and becoming the ultimate victor on our behalf. And when you trust in Him, you're removing your allegiance from the domain of darkness and being transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a transfer of allegiance. God used Satan to secure our redemption. God uses Satan to strengthen our faith. God uses Satan to deepen our trust. I want you to see the end of the story. Go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 10. This is the final outcome of our enemy. And you need to understand as we read this, it's the final outcome of our enemy along with all those who let him rule their life. And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. By choosing to listen to the deceptive lies of our enemy, he will lead you to the ultimate destruction for all eternity. 
those who trust him and are under his allegiance share in his faith. That's one of the reasons I gave you that little thing in the bulletin. Because it really does draw a picture of what his intent is compared to what Jesus' intent is. Because you need to understand that the enemy gets glory by your destruction. That's what he wants. But it looks different on the other side. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write these words, for they're faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the ones who thirst from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God, and he will be my child. For those who trust in Christ, that describes your inheritance. You need to understand that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. See, Satan is glorified when you're destroyed. God is glorified when his goodness, because of his design, is lived out in your life. That's how it all ends up. Now, but there's a gap. There's a gap between when Christ came in his first coming and when he comes again, as we sang about this morning. And that day is coming. And, and we live in the gap. And so the question is, how do we stand firm in the gap? In fact, that's the whole point of this series. How do you stand firm in the midst of this warfare that will continue until finally and completely Jesus puts an end to it all? And, and I want to give you two things. I'm going to make it easy on you this morning. Two things, all right? The first one is this. Remember the mission. Remember the mission. The only reason that, that we're here and not there is because there's still work to be done. And like Peter reminds us, we need to be reminded again, God's not slow about his promises, as some count slowness. But he's patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But he wants all to come to repentance, to take that transfer of allegiance from following Satan and his ploys to gain your attention to trusting in him for the goodness that he desires in your life. So what? remember what on earth we're here for. And then we don't get so easily entangled with the things of this world. Now, what that means for us as parents is this. Are you raising kids or making disciples? Are you preparing them for success in this world or preparing them for the reality of the next? See, if we remember the mission, it impacts the way we parent because we're preparing them for things yet to come. And do I want my kids to be happy and well? Yes, but not at the expense of trusting in Christ. That's what I want them to know most importantly. 
the second group I might speak to is this, the students. Those of you guys who are in high school and middle school. Are you strengthened in your faith or distracted by the enemy? Because here's the thing. Let me give it to you real concisely. Double A, double D. Get that? Double A, double D. Athletics, academics, dating, drugs, alcohol. Those are his ploys. He uses them masterfully because he wants to tell you, look, if you're good in sports, people like you. I mean, look at the crowds that come to watch you. I mean, you want to talk about filling that space in your heart? That'll do it. Be a good athlete. That'll make you whole. But you're going to end up empty on the other side. Okay, what about academics, okay? If you're smart, you get into the best colleges, you become a doctor, you make good money, you have a wife, two kids, perfect. I've worked with them. And there are those who've trusted in Christ who look at all those things as a physician in the medical field and they say, you know what? This is just what God's given me to do. I'm grateful to do it, but it's not where I find my happiness. And then I've also seen those who have pursued all those things, who don't have that trust in Christ, who get them all and then they look at themselves and say, I'm empty. Then there's the whole appeal of drugs and alcohol because, man, that's partying. And that's fun. And guess what? They're right. It is. It is. It's fun. Until you wake up the next morning. And then you realize it didn't do anything to fill the emptiness that I still have in my heart. But if I had a girlfriend or had a boyfriend... Now, that would change it. Like, uh, what's his name? The guy that's on Oprah all the time, the counselor guy, what's his name? Dr. Phil, that's right. This is what he says. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? It's a ploy of the enemy. Make no mistake, he's trying to get you to fill your heart with things that will never satisfy what you long for most. And that's what you were created for to walk in fellowship and relationship with God, made possible only and completely through the sacrifice of Christ. Now, let me don't, I don't want to leave out my senior saints, those of you who've walked and lived a lot of life. My question to you is this. Are you resting in retirement or living a legacy? Are you still investing your life? Because these guys are the ones who are trying to figure out life. You've lived a lot of life. Maybe you need to tell them about some of the lessons you've learned along the way. Open your life. Remember the mission. Remember what on earth we're here for. And then we're not so easily distracted by all those things the enemy tries to use. The second one is this. Trust God's provision. Trust God's provision. I hope if there's anything that you've heard this morning, you hear this clearly. There is nothing. Nothing. Not even the schemes of the devil that God can't use to accomplish his good purposes in your life. And in a morning like this, there are basically two groups of people. There are those who are in a good place. Okay? And if that's where you're at, I want you to know that you shouldn't feel guilty. You should be grateful. But be careful. Because this is the way I look at it sometimes. I think we treat God's blessings kind of like a warm bath, right? We kind of get in, oh, it's comfortable. Oh, this feels good. Maybe some bubbles, 
right? A little soft music in the background, a couple of le- candles, and man, you just want to ease into that goodness there. And if you're not careful before too long, you get so comfortable, you'll say something like this. Honey, I, I mean, God, can I have some sweet tea while I'm here? You see what I'm saying? Okay, just in case that wasn't clear enough, let me give you an example. It's like going to McDonald's. You order a quarter pounder, a medium fry, and a medium drink. Okay? You get your order, you go to the park, you sit down, and you realize when you open up the bag, hey, I got a large drink, a large fry, and two quarter pounders. This is awesome. But you look around, and there's a bunch of children who hadn't eaten in weeks. And they're looking at you, and all you can say is, this is awesome, two quarter pounders, how lucky am I? My point is this. There's another group in our church this morning who are in a hard place. And if God has been good to you, you need to share. You need to give something away. And I'll be honest with you. It's going to cost you. It will be inconvenient. And I'm no fool. I know that some of you are here this morning simply because of the fact there was nothing better to do. But let's be honest with ourselves. If something better came along, you wouldn't be here. Because chances are, you're probably not living in community that much anyway. Why? Because it messes up your bath time. You see what I'm saying? But when you remember the mission, you understand that when God puts you in a good place, you've got something to offer. Because there are people in a hard place. And I like the way Tim Keller describes suffering, those hard places, He says, the world looks at it as an interruption, but as a believer, we see that it always has purpose. And there's a wide range of purposes. I mean, God can make difficult times in our life to get our attention. It can be for discipline, right? And the way I would describe that, it's like getting a shot to cure a disease. Does the shot hurt? Yes. Does suffering hurt? Yes. But sometimes it's to get our attention to say, look, dude, you're looking in all the wrong places. The shot of suffering is to get your attention to say, I have the answer for what your heart longs for most. That disease is going to kill you unless you trust me. So it can be used for discipline. As we saw with Job, it can be used to strengthen your faith. Now, like I said earlier, it's not something you wish for on the front end, but I assure you, not something you'll trade on the back end. Because of the the goodness of what you understand about who God is. Once you heard about him, now you know him. The other one is to deepen our trust. You see, sometimes we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. (laughs) And then we don't have any other options, and so maybe we ought to give it a try. There's a situation that I think a lot of people are in in our world today, and I want to speak to that because I want to make sure that we don't have a false hope. A false hope is a hope that says maybe, okay? Because there are some people who are in a hard place, and chances are their circumstances aren't going to change. So what about those people, right? Look at my friend Randy. (laughs) False hope says maybe, maybe someday God will heal me, and I'll get up and walk out of this chair. (laughs) Maybe. But a true hope, as a believer in Jesus Christ, says that one day, when those of us who have trusted in Christ are in heaven 
walk in those heavenly streets, this boy's going to outrun every single one of you. <laughs> See those guys over there? You're going to run twice as fast as them. And the reason is, is because Randy, above all of us, is going to understand what it means to have the gift to walk on two legs. And he's not going to walk. That boy's going to run. It makes me think of uh, that quote from Chariots of Fire when Eric Little says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. There's a true hope. And it has no maybe. And there is one day when there is no sickness. There is no disease. There is no grieving. And I don't know what I'm going to do because <laughs> I grieve a lot. <coughs> but that's the hope, the sure and true hope that we long for, that we live for. So remember the mission. Trust in God's provision. He is faithful to the end. Let me pray for us. Father, I just think of the words. These are your words, and so I'm just going to use them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes again. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that there is a very real clarity in the hearts and minds of every person here that there's a spiritual battle, that we have an adversary. He's powerful and effective, and we cannot overcome him on our own. But we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he's inviting us to transfer our allegiance from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when we enter into that relationship, we begin to understand through good times and through hard times the faithfulness of his promises in our life. And we hold firm to a sure and certain hope of complete and eternal redemption through fellowship with him and, praise God, relationships with one another as we share in that together. May we remember the mission and trust your provision, God, until that day comes. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.